I have long been told that our spiritual life never rises above our prayer life. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to our spiritual fervor. Today we continue our eight-part sermon series entitled One Another. The Bible is loaded with instructions and commands telling us how we are to relate one to another. We've already considered how we are to forgive one another, love one another, encourage one another. And today I want us to think about how we are to pray for one another. It is James, the brother of our Lord, who tells us to pray for one another. For the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. I've got a holy hunch that he probably got that from big brother Jesus. I think that little brother James watched how Jesus prayed. And he thought to himself, now what he does is powerful. And what he does is effective. So I thought this morning it might be advantageous for us to consider the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 11. I want to read in your hearing verses 1 to 13. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 11, I'll begin at verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, Say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It was an unidentified disciple who came to Jesus saying, Lord, teach us to pray. I suspect that in this moment, this anonymous disciple could have asked for anything. He could have said, Lord, teach us to feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish because we saw you do it and it was awesome. He could have said, Lord, teach us to 
open up blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and raise the dead to life again. Because we've seen you do those things, and that's nothing short of miraculous. He could have said, Lord, teach us to preach so that everyone is on the edge of their seat just waiting for the next word to tumble out of our lips. Teach us to preach like you preach. This anonymous disciple could have asked for any of those things. But on this day, he doesn't ask for any of that. Instead, he comes to the master and he says, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. I don't think that this disciple is just trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, John's disciples, they've been taught how to pray. Jesus, you need to teach us how to pray. No, I don't think that this disciple is just trying to keep up with the other disciples of the one belonging to John. No, I think that this disciple knows the power and the priority of prayer in the life of Jesus. And he probably thinks to himself, I know Jesus is sheer perfection. And if sheer perfection prays this much, how much more should I pray? Because I know that I am the opposite of sheer perfection. So Lord, teach us to pray. What follows is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It probably should be labeled the disciples' prayer. Luke is not the only one to record for us the Lord's Prayer. It's also recorded in an extended version in Matthew's Gospel. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that this is what Jesus told his disciples to pray. Specifically, it's Matthew who begins by saying, this then is how you should pray. I don't want it to escape our reflection that In Matthew's gospel, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. You're aware that the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever live is recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. At the heart of that great sermon is this prayer. At the heart of of the message of Jesus is this Lord's Prayer. And beginning the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's version, Matthew tells us that Jesus says he then told them how to pray. There's nothing wrong with quoting the Lord's Prayer verbatim. In fact, there's probably some power in doing that. But I want you to note that Jesus does not tell us what to pray He tells us how to pray. So there must be some biblical principles of prayer embedded in this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. He's not so much telling us what to say. He's telling us how we ought to pray. And I think that in this Lord's Prayer, there are at least three valuable lessons that you and I can learn as we pray to God for ourselves and for one another. The first is this. That in prayer, we approach God with relational reverence. Whether you're reading it from Luke's version or Matthew's version, Jesus clearly communicates that when we go to God in prayer, we approach him with relational reverence. 
It is Luke who gives us the cliff note version. It just simply says, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Matthew fleshes it out a little bit more. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Regardless of whether you're reading the cliff note version of Luke or the extended version of Matthew, both of them record accurately on the lips of Jesus that when you pray, you go to God in relational reverence. Both of them tell us that that Jesus said we call God Father. Now that may be common to you. That may be so normal that you, you realize whenever I pray, I always speak to God as Father. But can I tell you that the listeners of the first century, they would have been flabbergasted by the words of Jesus. In this moment, Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, tells his disciples, when you approach the first person of the Trinity, God himself, you call him Father. Nobody in the first century would have thought to themselves it would be appropriate to go to the infinite, eternal, sovereign God of the universe who spoke and nothing became something. It's appropriate for us to go to him and call him Father. Yet that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. He says you can approach the sovereign Savior of the universe. You can approach the divine creator. You can gain an audience with God Almighty and simply call him Dad. This is a relational term. In fact, there, there is no deeper, more profound relational term that could be spoken. And Jesus says that, that we, have, we have every right to go to God Almighty and call him Dad, our Father in heaven. Now, I do need to add that when we pray, We do not pray like our liberal friends who call God mother. We do not pray to God and even use the generic term of parent. And if you ask, well, why don't we do that? Why is that unacceptable? Simply because Jesus didn't do it. And we pray like Jesus Our goal is to pray like Jesus. If Jesus thought that the best term in your approach to God is mother, he would have said it. If he would have wanted to use a generic term as parent, he could have said it. He had those words accessible in his vocabulary. But instead, he said, when you go to God in prayer, you approach him with relational reverence. You go to God Almighty and you call him father. You call him dad. Because that's the best word to describe your relationship with him. It is so personal. It is so intimate. It is so relational. He is father. And we are his children. So we don't use words like mother. We don't use words like parent. Why? Because Jesus didn't use those words. And Jesus is teaching his disciple how to pray. So when you go to God, you go with relational reverence. The very next phrase says, Father, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed, it means holy. That the Father that we pray to, he is holy. The word holy means set apart. He is uniquely different than anything else in the cosmos. Our heavenly dad is holy. We go to him 
in prayer. And, and we approach him and we acknowledge his holiness. Now for some, uh, your earthly dad is good. For others, your earthly dad is lousy. But for all of us, our heavenly dad is holy. You may have a good example of an earthly father. You may have a terrible example of an earthly father. And regardless of what example you come from, I'm here to tell you that when you approach God Almighty, when you gain an audience with the eternal divine, when you go to him, you acknowledge he is father and your heavenly father is holy. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is tapping in to the superlative nature of God. The one word that describes God better than any other English word or any other word in any vocabulary is the word holy. You may recall that in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet receives his calling from God, he has a vision of the Lord. He's in the temple and God is there and the train of the robe filled the temple and the doorposts and thresholds shook. And there were six-winged creatures that were flying from one side of the sanctuary to the other. We would call these six-winged creatures six-winged angels. And these angels who have been with God Almighty from the very beginning of creation, they are declaring on their lips, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In fact, they can't say anything else. That's the only thing that they say, and they keep on repeating it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. They're declaring the superlative nature of God. They say one word in a triple fashion, holy, holy, holy. Which, incidentally, is the only characteristic of God written in that fashion in all of Scripture. You don't find a description of God where someone says on their lips, He is love, love, love. Grace, grace, grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our God is love. He is grace, and He is mercy. But the one word that seems to describe him in his triple superlative fashion is this word holy. The angels declare it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. When Jesus teaches his disciple to pray, he says, when you approach God, you approach him with relational reverence. He is your heavenly daddy. And your heavenly daddy is holy. When we pray for ourselves or for one another, we've got to keep this in balance. It is easy uh, to emphasize one to the neglect of the other. It is easy for us to emphasize the relational aspect of God to the neglect of the reverent approach that we need to have of the Lord. When we do that, we become far too flippant in our approach to God. So that um, you may be like the person that I saw years ago wearing the t-shirt that simply read, Jesus is my homeboy. Now listen, I'll acknowledge that Jesus is my best friend. 
Scripture says that Jesus is a friend of sinners. But nowhere does the Bible teach that Jesus is your homeboy. Where you go to Jesus and say, what's up, dog? How's it, how's it going? What's happening up there in heaven? But can, can you send some of that right down here with us? What's up, Jesus? You're my homeboy. When we approach Jesus and emphasize the relational to the neglect of the reverence, we become far too flippant in our regard of God. But the other extreme is equally problematic. If we emphasize the reverence to the neglect of the relational, then we will portray a God who is aloof, far off, and one who cannot be approached. But the scripture reminds us that Jesus is our high priest. He's able to sympathize with us. For he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that he can help us in our time of need. We do not have a God who is far off and removed from us. We have a God who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. We have a God who has come near to us so that we might draw near to him. So when we approach God in prayer, we approach him with relational reverence. We don't want to neglect one to the extreme of the other. We don't want to emphasize one to the neglect of the other. We approach him with this well-balanced relational reverence. Jesus says this then is how you pray. You approach God in prayer with relational reverence. Secondly, in prayer we approach God with desperate dependency. We approach the Lord with desperate dependency. It's a level of dependency that says, God, if you don't do it, it won't happen. God, if you won't help, I can't be helped. If you don't move, then nothing is going to move. God, I am desperately dependent upon you. It is James who says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. It is Paul the apostle who says that our God provides all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So all that we have comes from the Lord. We are desperately dependent upon him. When we go to him in prayer, we've got to acknowledge that we are desperately dependent and everybody we're praying for is desperately dependent upon the Lord. In what ways are you and I desperately dependent upon the Lord? Well, in this prayer, Jesus itemizes at least a few things, three, I think, to be exact. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation. Jesus says, you are so desperately dependent upon God, who is your holy daddy, you are so dependent upon him that he is the one who gives you your daily bread. Some of our uh, success is our setback. It is hard for us to pray for daily bread when we have a week's worth of bread in the cupboard, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said, you're so dependent on the Lord for daily bread. That's an everyday occurrence, for daily bread. And yet you and I think to ourselves, now wait a minute. Listen, I've got a week's worth of bread in my cupboard. And I got that week's worth of bread 
from hard-earned money that I received from a well-paying job that I have earned by my credentials and by my experience. We think to ourselves, God, you've got to handle the mighty miraculous moments. I'll take care of the daily details. So God, I can handle the daily bread. I can go to Walmart. I can go to Publix. I can get the daily bread. I can get all that I need. I'll take care of the small stuff. But God, I need you to take care of miraculous moments of my life. You know those things that I just can't handle. Those things I can't fix. Those things that, that I just, I just don't, I don't, know, don't know what's going to happen. And when Jesus teaches his disciple to pray, he says, you've got to understand that Every morsel you eat, every dollar you receive, it comes not from you. It comes from the mighty, benevolent hand of God. Paul said in his Corinthian correspondence, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it's because of you? What a great series of questions. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have, you receive from God, directly or indirectly. Everything comes from his benevolent hand. So Jesus is reminding us that every morsel that we eat, every, every meal that we have every single day, it's all because of God. The air that we breathe, the ability to put one foot in front of the other, the clothes on our back, the roof over our head, the car that we drive. I mean, everything that we have is because of God. We are desperately dependent upon the Lord. If he doesn't supply the daily bread, we're not going to eat. If he doesn't supply the air, we're not going to breathe. If he doesn't supply the job, then we're not going to be able to pay for anything. If he doesn't do it, we're not going to be able to fix it. Desperately dependent upon the Lord. One of the things that's a challenge for us in America in the 21st century is we think if we need it, we'll go buy it. And we're Americans. So even if we don't need it, we can still go buy it. Because we can get whatever we want. It's based upon what we have, what we've earned, what we've received. And Jesus is teaching the disciple, when you approach God, you approach him with desperate dependency. It is the Lord who provides every morsel that you eat, every dollar that you receive, everything that you have. And not only are we desperately dependent upon every morsel that we eat, but also forgive us of our sins. And help us to forgive others who have sinned against us. Now when we come to this, uh, we more understand our desperate dependency, don't we? I mean, at first with the you know, daily bread, we think to ourselves, well, maybe I can provide that for myself. But when it comes to forgiveness of your sin, most of you understand, I cannot be forgiven without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for God Almighty, there's no way I would be saved. I would be a lost lot of people, and so would you. I mean, all of us are, are sinful at birth. We are dead in our sin. And without the movement of God in Jesus Christ, then we have no hope of salvation. Our salvation, our forgiveness, it is God-initiated. It is God-accomplished. It is God-sustained. It is God who stepped out of heaven. It is God who wrapped himself in flesh. 
It is God who was born in a Bethlehem barn some 2,000 years ago. It is God who lived a perfect life on this side. It is God who stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with our cross strapped to his back. It is God who made his way up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there the Roman soldiers stretched him wide and nailed him to the cross. It is God who declared into your hands... I commit my spirit. He bowed his head and gave up his ghost. It is God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, who said to tell us die. It is finished. And Jesus, the God-man, he bowed his head. He died. They took him off that cross. And it is God who raised him from the dead on the third day. We live in the triumphal reality that the tomb is still empty. Easter is a reality. It happens not just once a year, but every day we live in the reality that the tomb is empty. Christ is alive. Our sin, our death, our hell has been paid for completely without God Almighty. We could not be forgiven. But because of God, our forgiveness is full and free and forever. We say to the Lord, we know that we are desperately dependent upon you for forgiveness. So forgive us all of our sin. And if you are a believer in the Lord, if you are one who follows hard after Christ, then you know that all your sin has been forgiven, past, present, and future. There's a reason to worship just because of that. There's a reason to shout hallelujah just because of that. I mean, all of our sin has been forgiven. It's all been washed away, past, present, and future. We are desperately dependent upon the Lord for forgiveness of sin. And help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. Okay, wait a minute, time out. Um, Lord, I really like to receive your forgiveness But giving that forgiveness to others, that's a little problematic. Lord, do you know what they did to me? And God says, yes, I know. And I also know what you've done to me. Oh, but God, do you know what they said about me? God says, yes, I know, and I also know what you've said about me. God, I don't deserve to give them my forgiveness. And God says, I know I don't deserve to give you my forgiveness. One commentator said it this way, that if we shut the door of forgiveness, it's shut on both sides. What blocks the forgiveness from us also blocks forgiveness to us. That's why Jesus gives this extended caveat In Matthew chapter 6, when he gets done with giving the description of the Lord's prayer, he says, if you forgive your brother, God will forgive you of your sins. But if you do not forgive the one who has sinned against you, then God will not forgive your sins. What, Jesus? What are you saying? Are you saying that if I don't forgive somebody who's wronged me, that God won't forgive me? And Jesus says, ding, 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 that's exactly right. You won the chicken dinner. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because the door that blocks forgiveness from you also blocks forgiveness to you. We've already spoken about the need for forgiving one another. And I quoted John MacArthur who said, Never are you more like God than when you forgive.
Never are you more like God than when you forgive someone who has harmed you and hurt you and they don't really deserve your forgiveness. In that moment, you more resemble God than ever before. For God has forgiven you even though you don't deserve it and I don't deserve it. Jesus says to this unidentified disciple, when you approach your heavenly daddy who's holy, you approach him with desperate dependency. Every morsel you eat, every forgiveness you receive and extend towards others. But then he also says, you are desperately dependent upon God to lead you not into temptation. We know that being tempted is no sin. Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. We are tempted in a myriad of ways, and many times we do fall prey into sin. Jesus says, you are so desperately dependent upon God Almighty that our God, our Father, can lead you from temptation. Because the end result of temptation is sin. And when sin is fully grown, it is death. If it's up to me and if it's up to you, we will go down a path of our own selfish curiosity. We'll go down a path of our own selfish cravings and sinful desires. And the end result will not only be that we'll face temptation, but we will indulge in sin, which will result in our spiritual death. Jesus says, before you even start going down that path, you need to pray, Lord, keep me from temptation. Don't wait till you're in the moment of temptation to then start praying. You pray before you even get down that path. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Because I'm so desperately dependent upon you. If it's up to me, I will I will do evil because I am evil. And that's not just for me, that's also for you. You will do evil because inherently you are evil. And it's, and it's that reality that we are desperately dependent upon the Lord for every morsel that we eat, for every forgiveness that we receive and extend, and we are dependent upon him to lead us not into temptation. Jesus is teaching the disciple uh, how to pray, how to pray for himself, how to pray for one another. When you approach God, you approach him with relational reverence. Secondly, you approach him with desperate dependency. Third and finally, in prayer, we approach God with persistent piety. It is only Luke who gives the following story. Suppose you have a friend you go to that friend at midnight. You know that it's late. You know that everybody is already batting down for the evening. But you've got a crisis on your hands. You live in the first century in the Palestinian culture, and all of a sudden, you had a rat-tat-tat on your front door. And a guest came to your front porch. And you know that in, that in Near Eastern hospitality custom, it is shameful, it is embarrassing for you not to offer hospitality to that person and give that person something to eat. 
but you don't have anything in the cupboard. You've already made plans to go tomorrow to get daily bread. You don't have anything left over. It's not that you're going to give him a lavish meal. You would if you could, but you don't even have anything. You don't even have enough bread uh, in the cupboard. And so you think to yourself, where can I go? So you have a friend. You go to that friend. It's well past midnight. You knock on his door. Friend, please lend me three loaves of bread because I... A traveler has journeyed to my house, and I've got to give him something. I cannot leave him empty-handed. Please, will you give me three loaves of bread? Now, there's more than a few of you thinking right now, why in the world would he ask for three loaves of bread? You don't have three loaves of bread in your cupboard. Because you think to yourself, it'll go stale before we eat that much bread. If we eat three loaves of bread over a span of a couple of days, we'll be backed up for weeks. I mean, there's no way that we eat all that, all that bread. We don't need all that bread. So you think to yourself, I don't even have three loaves of bread in my cupboard. Well, it's not a loaf like a Wonder Bread loaf. It's more like a Sister Schubert dinner roll. It's more like a Hawaiian roll. It's, it's just a little piece of bread. And, and you're asking your neighbor, please, can you spare me a couple of rolls left over from dinner? Because I've, I've got to give my traveling friend something to eat. And on the inside of the door, you hear from your friend, and he simply says, don't bother me. It's late. My children are already in bed. If I get up and step over Junior and around Sally and rummage in the kitchen, it will wake them up. Furthermore, if I then have to tiptoe back over them to get to the front door and unlock that iron bar, which really needs some more grease, and so it'll make a loud noise. I'll open the door, which always creaks and crackles, and I'll open the door. It will wake them up, and you and I both know that when babies are asleep, you let them sleep. You don't wake them up. See, in the first century... A modest home was a one-room home. During the day, it was a family room. At night, it was a bedroom. There's nothing shady. There's nothing evil. There's nothing underhanded when he says, my children are in bed with me. Of course they are. Because everybody in the family would, would bed down in the same room. And he thinks to himself, listen, I, it's not that what you're asking for is, is so extravagant, but but it's just bad timing. I just do not want to get up, go in the kitchen. I'll wake up my kids. It took us hours to put them to bed. I don't want them to wake up after midnight in order for you to have a couple of uh, pieces of bread to give to some stranger that just showed up at your doorstep. And Jesus says, that friend of yours inside the house, eventually he will get up. Not because he's your friend but because of your boldness. It takes a lot to go to your neighbor after midnight, knock on his door, get him out of bed in his PJs, and simply ask for three loaves of bread. You might get shot. You don't know what your neighbor's gonna bring to the front door. He may bring a rifle and put it right between your eyes. I mean, you don't know what's gonna happen. You, it's a lot for you to ask for this. Jesus says the man's going to get up not because he's your friend. He'll get up because of your boldness. The word that's translated boldness can also be rendered persistence. That's why Jesus follows by saying, ask and you'll receive. Seek 
and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open. Those three commands of ask and seek and knock, they're all present tense, which implies it's continuous action. In your prayer life, you have persistent piety. You don't just ask once, you keep on asking. You don't just seek once, you keep on seeking. You don't just knock on the door of heaven once, you keep on knocking. I've said before, but it bears repeating, there are some of us who are one prayer away from a breakthrough. One prayer away from the salvation of your spouse. One prayer away from your prodigal coming home. One prayer away from your marriage being mended. One prayer away from your health being healed. One prayer away from your chaos being calmed. One prayer away. Some of you are one prayer away from a breakthrough. Jesus is telling his disciple, when you go to God, you go with persistent piety. You say, but pastor, I've been asking for the same thing for years. Keep on asking. But pastor, I've been seeking the same thing for the last six months and nothing has happened. God has not budged. You keep on seeking. But pastor, I've been knocking on the door of heaven, knocking so loudly that I've I've nearly knocked down the door of heaven and God's not doing anything and there's no answer on the horizon. And Jesus says, keep on knocking. When you approach God, you approach him with persistent piety. This is a parable not of comparison, but one of contrast. Jesus is not comparing God Almighty to your cranky neighbor. Remember, who is God? He is your holy daddy. He'll move heaven and earth to answer your request according to his will. He will move heaven and earth to answer your request according to his will will so you keep on asking and you keep on seeking and you keep on knocking you're one prayer away perhaps from a breakthrough Jesus affirms that this is a parable of contrast not comparison a parable of comparison would be uh, the story that's recorded in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son it's the father who lovingly looks for his son and when his son comes over the horizon he runs to him that's the compassion of God Almighty that's a parable of comparison that God Almighty is like the father in Luke 15 But this story here in Luke chapter 11, it's not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. God is not like your cranky neighbor. God has always been and always will be your holy daddy. Jesus drives home this point when he says, What father among you, if your son asked for a goldfish, you'd give him a snake? There's no dirty dad that would do that. I mean, there's no father who would say, hey, this is going to be funny. This will be funny. Instead of giving my boy a goldfish to play with, I'm going to give him a serpent to play with and see what happens. Let's just step back and watch. Isn't that going to be funny? There is no dad listening to my voice that would do that. And if your son asked for scrambled eggs, you would not place a scorpion on his plate and tell him, eat up. You wouldn't do that. 
And Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven? It's the parable of contrast. If you who are evil, and you're evil and I'm evil, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more our Father in heaven, who is the opposite of evil, he is holy, how much more will he give us? Jesus is teaching this disciple how to pray. The unidentified disciple comes to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, okay, let me tell you how to pray. Nothing wrong with quoting this prayer verbatim every day, in fact. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is not telling us what to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He's telling us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. So in prayer, when you approach God, you approach him with relational reverence. You approach him with desperate dependency. You approach him with persistent piety. This is how you pray. It's how you pray for yourself. It's how you pray for one another. So let me just end with these words. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, because I come to thee. There's more than a few people listening to my voice. And this morning, you just need to pray again. But pastor, I've already prayed for this or that. And maybe today you just need to pray again. I know you can pray from your seat, but I want you to know the altar's open for you to come and to pray. And maybe you need to pray for yourself. Maybe you need to pray for one another. Maybe you need to pray for someone else. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your son. Maybe it's your daughter. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a teammate. Maybe it's a school classmate. Maybe it's somebody that you don't even know, but today they're halfway around the world and they are huddled in their houses with missiles flying over top their heads. And maybe today you just need to pray for one another. This morning the altar's open. Maybe you're here today and you've never really prayed for the first time. You've never prayed to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus is here to seek and to save you. And maybe this morning when we sing the invitation song, you just need to come, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I, I need to pray for the first time. I need to pray that Jesus can forgive me of all of my sin, and he can. Maybe you're here today and you're looking for a church home and this is a spot where God is leading you to plop and plant. Why don't you use this moment to come and join this faith family? Whatever it is the Lord is leading you to do, just acknowledge, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, because I come to thee. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. Lord, thank you for showing us how to pray. Thank you for teaching us how to pray. And now, Lord, just help us to pray. Help us to pray like you taught us to. Help us to approach you with the relational reverence and desperate dependency, persistence in our piety. Father, help us just to fall on our faces before you. We give you this moment of invitation. Help your people to respond in obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.